0: Welcome to the Illuminations Media Network. And this episode is brought to you by my books, Spiritual Healing Through a Breakup, and Tam's Healthy Kitchen Down Home Cooking. You can find both of those books at Tamshealthykitchen.com, and you can also find them on Amazon work. I'm Tamara Taggart, your host, and I'm super excited to be back with you. As many of you probably know, I have not been interviewing for a while, been a little quiet, um, simply because my husband was very ill, and unfortunately, I did lose him. Um, we all lost a wonderful man uh, in April to cancer, and uh, I'm continuing on, and I'm interviewing again, beginning now, um, because that's what he would have wanted me to do, and so I'm super excited to to interview Paul Wallace today. Uh, I have been admiring his work for a very, very long time, and I feel very, very privileged and honored to interview him. And to give you just a little taste of Paul Wallace, the man, his intellect, and his passion, I'm going to read a little excerpt from his book, the one that we're going to be talking about today, Escaping from Eden. Uh, This is from page 153. And Paul writes, what are human beings? And what are we capable of? I want to know how our lives can be with better-tapped brains and old inhibitors switched off. I want to really unpack all that Jesus gave us to unravel our servant and slave programming. I want to know what a free sibling society and love for all our brothers and sisters might look like and feel like. You know, this speaks to the passion This speaks to a person who is a visionary and who wants to find out the truth, who wants to step out of the agreed upon story. And so I welcome Paul Wallace to the Illuminations Media Network. Hey, Paul, thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Tamara, and thanks so much for having me on your show.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm excited. I've been following your work for a very long time. And I am so very impressed because you are a brave one. <laughs> you, uh, <laughs> you're writing things that I know most everyone, everyone who, who is a thinking person, you know, with critical thinking faculties <laughs> has asked often, you know, about those scriptures. But, you know, a lot of our, our, our listeners and viewers might ask, you know, escaping from Eden. You know, we often think about Eden as being this uh, wonderful place, that's a paradise. Even you know that's a that's another uh, word for Eden. You know would be a paradise, and uh, and here you are with this title, <laughs> escaping from Eden. You know you go deep into those questions as I said before, and and Paul, let's just jump right in. Why would one want to escape from Eden?
1: Well, obviously the the title is intended to intrigue people for all the reasons that you just laid out. We do think of Eden as a paradise. That's how the story seems to present and that's how it generally gets told. Why would you want to escape from a paradise? And yet, if you sit down with uh, a child's Bible, the child will quickly point out a whole number of anomalies in those stories, things that don't quite fit or make sense and um, the teacher or the parent will give an answer and often think gee I need to go back and look at that and the sort of anomalies I'm talking about are right at the beginning when God says let us make in our image to look like one of us and a child will say why does it say us one of who and then you get further in and God makes man but neglects to make woman that would seem a massive oversight couldn't he see that adam would need eve why did he think an animal would do in the first instance that's ridiculous and then you get further in and the snake appears why did god make the snake couldn't he see something was going to go wrong why is it eating a piece of fruit and then you get to genesis 6 you've got to start explaining genocide to a child and and how god is still a loving heavenly father even though he seems to be genociding people. And so you come across these anomalies and you think, "Mm, hmm, there must be a better answer (laughs) than the one I'm giving to that. But all those anomalies are really inviting us to go back to the texts and ask, what's really going on here? There's something else going on here. And so this story of paradise looks like the top layer of the story, but the anomaly bottles into another story that's hidden in plain sight in the text. And it has to do with all the source stories of the familiar stories that we know.
0: Well, I have to say it does it very well. And, and the writing style, the way that you've created the story and you've wrapped it around a, a personal experience, you drew me in. <laughs> I was there with oh, you. <laughs> and I felt really your I wanted pain. To,
1: <laughs> Yes, exactly. I wanted, to ta- I wanted company. I wanted to take the reader on the journey that I'd been on. And in a way, all the books I've written have been the book I wish someone had given me three years ago. And uh, Escaping from Eden is the same.
0: Now, definitely. Now, you know, just to go back a little bit about your background, that uh, that you uh, were definitely a part of the Anglican Church and the clergy and, uh, and you were a preacher and a teacher. Um, but here you are. You know, you're delving in, you, you're a theologian, you have studied deeply, you know, you, you, you go into, uh, into the story where you've paused, kind of like this pandemic that we're in. <laughs> it's, it's causing people to pause, you know, because you had an accident and you had an opportunity to actually slow it all down and take a deeper look. Wow. wow. I think a lot, of right. these, a lot of these things are, are going to be happening now with, with everyone ar- across the planet. People are going to begin, well, I think people have been waking up for quite a while, but now because people have slowed the rat race down a bit, you know, people are really taking a look at what's what. Don't you agree?
1: I do agree. I think uh, for a lot of people it's interrupted their their usual patterns and if your usual work pattern gets interrupted as a pause or if the communities that you're usually a part of you can't be a part of, that does give you a different kind of headspace to begin to ask some different questions and take longer in answering them. It's not true for everybody. I mean if you've got kids home from school and you're trying to work and homeschool your kids, you might not be taking a pause. It might be a lot more hectic than usual. But for many, yes, I think there is an opportunity to be asking different questions about your life, about the things you think, about the things you believe. You're Me having that time uh, in my shipping crate just to do some study without being in a rush for the next Sunday to produce the next sermon, that was really vital. And I think, you look at the history of um, history of Christianity or the history of any religion, very often there is significant uh, experience of renewal and refreshment, revival, revitalization that come from people taking time out uh, and slowing themselves down, uh, taking long enough, and long enough to let the answers come for something new and refreshing to emerge
0: right and and in your book you you beautifully uh demonstrate this this breaking down of of your own walls you know and and how it was very challenging for you, but you bravely move forward and and the question, of course, we don 't want to give away the entire story because because you know nobody can 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 miss out on this this is something that is a great gift that you've given to the world and I want everyone to get this book and to read it but but in that internal grappling you know and dealing with a colleague and uh, the change in your mindset and, and who you were going to be from that forward you know wow having to discuss this with your wife you know here's this huge change in in the way that you've lived your lives and what you've believed for so long How did you move through that as a family?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. In a way, escaping from Eden might look like a sudden departure from a journey I had been on in ministry. And not only had I been a a preacher, but I'd actually taught pastors how to interpret the Bible. Uh, And so I've been doing that for 15 years, and I've been preaching for 30 years. And so to get that far in and think, whoa, I've got some things wrong here. I need to take a turn. You're right. It is very significant. But I think all through my life as a believer, I've believed in the Reformation idea of continually going back, asking that right. And from time to time, you go back and ask, have I read that right? And the answer is no, you've missed something. And yes, there's some very significant things that I had perhaps not missed, just not thought through. Just not taking the time to think what are the implications of these things that got mentioned in passing at theological college all those years Mm -hmm. ago. But in terms of making the journey uh, with my wife and family, it's been really interesting because there was perhaps a period when some significant um, sort of control beliefs of mine were shifting and I was having to rethink some things and in particular to do with Uh, how populated is the universe that we live in and what are the implications for faith and belief and spirituality uh, in the light of all that other implications too and as I was thinking that through and thinking how do I absorb this information that I'm now exposing myself to my wife Ruth was on a parallel journey and it seemed to be almost on a weekly basis For that three year period, I would come to Ruth and I'd say, I've been thinking about this and I'm wondering if this might be the case. And Ruth would say, same here, completely different start point for Ruth. So my start point is hermeneutics, the principles of interpreting texts. That's always where I'd start. And I'd look at the text and come away thinking, hey, I've missed something. There's another possibility here. For Ruthie, it would be something completely different. But we would meet together and say, I've just made that change in my thinking too, week by week, sort of for three years. And so together we we turned this corner. And then as for our kids, um, five, nine, and 11, and one thing they are really good at, which most kids are good at, is asking questions. Yes. Um, So in that sense, it's easy for your kids to make a journey with you. So our kids, they go to a Christian school, and from time to time, they'll come back and say, oh, we looked at this today. Um, What do you think about that, Daddy? And my answer is always, what do you think about that, Evie? Does that sound right? What thoughts? And she will share her thoughts, and she's got fabulous instincts, and I'll say, well, I like the way you're thinking, Evie. Well, sometimes I say, I like the way you're thinking. Have you thought about this? And so we will we'll think it through together. And I find um, our kids, all of them, have a real instinct for when a question has or not been answered to their satisfaction. And uh, at their own level, they're able to ask questions and wrestle with them. And simply by not giving a pat answer and keeping them thinking, and as best I can, sharing what my work is about. We've made this journey together.
0: Beautiful. Uh, I have to say your parenting style is right up there. I'm hoping that other people will, uh, will take clues, you know, from your expression here. I love that. Well, the, the main one that, that we're speaking about, the one that really raised that eyebrow for you, was the plural of Elohim. Want to go into that discovery?
1: Right, sure. I, now I've known uh, about this word since going to theological college in my 20s, uh, a long time ago, and we were given the explanation that there are different words used in the texts of the Hebrew canon that get translated as God or Lord or the Lord, and that the different words used often reflect different traditions or different sources. Of course, scriptures are scriptures plural. They are texts that have been brought together, Um, a collection of scrolls that forms Genesis, a collection of scrolls that forms Deuteronomy, so on and so forth. And they come from different places and different times, and they come together to form the Bible, to form the Hebrew canon. And so the explanation is some of these come with this word Elohim. But the question is, why does it look like a plural? It looks like a masculine plural as if plural behaviours. You know, let us speak. Let us make the humans to look like one of us. Mm-hmm. Um, When Abraham is asked, why did you move from Ur of the Chaldees? He says, because the Elohim, plural, told me, plural. And when you go to some um, commentators, they'll say, oh, he's using the language of polytheism because he's talking to a polytheist. Well, Mm -hmm. really, that never quite convinced me. And it's a funny word because in some texts, in other texts, false god, demon demons, landlords, um, barons, Mm -hmm. angels. Well, how can it mean all those things? And if it does, how do we know what it means in which text? How do we know we've got those translations all correct? And in Mm texts where you find the Elohim, plural, doing wicked, awful, genociding, anti-human things, why do we translate it as God in those texts? And the answer to that question is that um, there's a very broad scholarly consensus that in the 6th century BCE, that's when the final edit was done on all the collection of those scrolls. He would turn it into a single work, and a single work that would teach the uh, theology of Judaism of that time. Judaism in the 6th century BCE was very firmly monotheist, and had a worldview, I think I can say that we are alone in the universe. And so that is the matrix that was taken to all those earlier texts. So texts where Elohim looked plural, that's got to be corrected. Him looked like Lentis, might need to dial that down a bit. A lot had to change in that moment to make everything fit. And, and it's very clear, even to a casual reader, that when you read those first stories in Genesis... They've been retold because the name for God revealed to Moses centuries, thousands of years after all these events, is in those stories. And so right away, the Bible's showing us that somebody after the time of Moses has gone back and retold these stories and put the holy name into them, Yahweh. And as soon as you see that, you ask the question, all right, that's fine. I get that. The message is only one true God. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But my question is, what were the original stories that got edited? And so right. that was the gateway I had to go through, the question I had to answer, and the journey I go on in the book, Escaping from Eden.
0: And yes, you do. You take us on a journey. Uh, we go back to uh, to the Anunnaki, which, which is might be challenging for people to think of okay I've heard of Sitchin and I've heard of you know uh, what he's written about in his his many books where he's speaking about the Anunnaki and uh, how they have upgraded man and so on and so forth but it's like how do we put that with the Bible how does that fit in with that are you saying that extraterrestrials actually had something to do with us Is it real?
1: (laughs) Well, when you go back, particularly to Genesis 1 to 11, and you read the stories of the Elohim, the question I ask in the book is what happens if you read that as a plural? What happens to the stories? And what happens is the stories change, but they don't change in a random way. Once you do um, shift in such a way that they line up with the ancient Sumerian stories, And very quickly, you can see that the Genesis 1 to 11 stories are a summary form of the Sumerian stories of the Anunnaki or the sky people, as I call them. And that shouldn't really surprise us because the Bible tells us that Abraham and Sarah, the progenitors of uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, came from a Sumerian-based culture. They were a Semitic people, but they were a part of a Sumerian culture. Abraham's father was a priest of that culture. And so we shouldn't be surprised that they would, bring all stories they had learned as children and the stories they had known in Abraham's case for what was it, 70 years, take those stories with them and sew them into the foundations of their own tradition and what was to become their own Bible. So we shouldn't be surprised to find those parallels. And when we started being able to read the Sumerian stories in the 1800s, when we found the translation key, people started reading them and they thought, hang on, this story sounds like Adam and Eve. This sounds like Cain and Abel. All this sounds like, and quickly it became clear that the Sumerian stories were the source of those early Bible stories. But the challenge it throws up, as you mm-hmm. just pointed out, is that the Sumerian stories aren't God's stories.
0: Right. Their stories mm-hmm. about our
1: ancestors bumping up against visitors from another planet who had a hands-on involvement in our development. It's a foreign-sounding story at first, but it actually repeats in the Elohim stories once you pluralize it. And then, as I go through in the book, you find there are other names all around from all kinds of cultures that had no contact with each other, all with the same memory being expressed in different ways.
0: Now, Paul, for some believers, they may grapple with this. This, They may believe that this discounts everything that they have believed about God and their Christian faith. You know, I don't think it does. I have heard conversations, you know, where people think that, well, then this means that everything that I have believed is untrue. And for me, no. God has created so many different things, right? He didn't just create us. Certainly, if he created extraterrestrials, does that change, you know, the one true God and the loving God?
1: I agree. And I think there there are two start points there for me. One is uh, that as a Christian, my faith really centers on Jesus, taking Jesus seriously, wanting to follow his teachings. And if I believe that God is like Jesus shows me, then when I go and read the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, that gives me questions right away.
0: Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, big time
1: questions. You know, because no
0: ideas, I, I was just I was just going to say, because that God of the Old Testament is, is quite cruel. You know, That's and, I, right. and, and it's very different from from the father God that that Jesus was one with. You know, it was exactly. all about uh, generosity and love and compassion.
1: And forgiveness.
0: Adelaide. Yes. Yeah.
1: And the whole world. So if you if you believe in Jesus and you go back to the Hebrew Scriptures, you will be saying this text that says that God won't forgive, that can't be right. This text that says God genocides people, I'm not sure about that. This text that says that God loves Jewish people and hates the rest of the world, that can't be the whole story. So you've got those questions from the beginning. And so for me, going back and saying What's going on here? Have I read this right? Is there another way of reading it? It wasn't striking at the foundations for me because my foundations are to do with Jesus, and um, there's an it relates to an amazing thing that happened about ten years ago when Pope Benedict XVI called on the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to hold what was called a colloquium, which is a symposium, basically of top theologians, top scholars. And they were called together to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And all the spokespeople who emerged from that basically said there isn't really a theological issue in this, because if we have contact, other tells us is that God has made far more than we were aware of, and these other entities will be creatures of the same Creator. And just as we've had to learn, or hopefully are learning how to get along on this planet, we need to learn how to get along in this cosmos. Um, but it, it only shows us the immensity and diversity of God's amazing creation. And I agree with that.
0: Yes, I, I do totally. I think that, that it broadens our perspective, you know, and, and it's time for us to grow up most definitely. (laughs) It's definitely time. You you know, another thing that, um, that you outlined for me, and it's something that I have thought about a great deal. I, from the time I was a very child, uh, a very young child, I somehow intuited that the world begins and ends and everything kind of starts all over again is the way that I I saw it in my mind as a little girl. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: you speak to the beginning you know, right there in Genesis, where everything is being created. You speak to it as not a creation, but as something else.
1: Yes, that's right. It took me a while to get my head around what was happening there. As I did my research, I I started coming across really interesting evidences of civilizations far older than the ones we know about. And so, for instance, if you look off the Gulf of Cambay in India, uh, off the coast of Cuba, uh, off the coast of Japan, uh, Malta, we can find the evidences of megalithic cities that have been above sea level no more recently than 10,000 years ago. Well, that's earlier than the timeline we know anything about. And initially, it could be quite a disturbing thought that there may have been civilizations here, older than the Sumerians, older than the Egyptians that we don't know anything about. And so I began asking, how does that fit with my understanding of world history from science, from the Bible? Um, another aspect to it is just this is middle-aged brain. <laughs> uh, I can totally relate. <laughs> uh, the, writer, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, um, we have no memory of those who went before us. And after a time, no one will have any idea about us.
0: Right.
1: Now he's talking about civilizations in my view. He's not talking about individuals. You know, we have history. Mm-hmm. He's talking about civilizations coming and going. But the thing that got me to this idea that Genesis one might be the story of a... In my research for escaping from Eden, as I began reading, ancestral narratives, ancient world mythologies from all around the world, and finding these repeating stories, I began to consider that they are all carrying memory, but they appear to be carrying memories of the same traumas in our prehistoric past. Now, when people read ancient texts, including Genesis, they often fall into two camps. They read it in a fundamentalist way, as if everything's like a diary entry, this is what happened, this is history, this is science, every letter of it, that's what happened. But then others want to read it as, oh, this is some kind of a fable for a moral tale. But as we said before, it's very difficult to get morality out of some of these old stories. My view started to shift again to these stories are vehicles of memory. And so when I go to a text, I need to ask, what memory is this carrying? Mm -hmm. So what if we go to Genesis 1 in that way and ask what memory is being carried here? And I began to see that if that is an expression of memory, we're being, we're having described for us a planet that is in a chaotic state and then Elohim arrive and hover over the waters and begin Mm -hmm. to re-terrorize. A form what year. When Popol Vu, which is the Mesoamerican tradition of the Mayan people, it talks about the same thing: a dark planet flooded in water, and then entities arriving, hovering over the water and having conversations. How do we nurture life on this planet? How do we get life into the oceans? Vegetation, animal life, sentient life. And the process that's described is exactly what you would expect visitors to do who've come to help life on Earth rehabilitate after a catastrophe. My Richard, the Clovis Comet, and there's evidence that the planet was impacted about 12,800 years ago by the breakup of a comet, and it extincted 70 to 80 percent of the megafauna in North America and blanketed the north half of the planet in a pool of dust and ash and soot created massive flooding and all of a sudden a scenario is being described that sounds just like what we hear in genesis just like what we hear in the popol Vu. the planet is flooded and shrouded in darkness in a state of devastation in the hebrew text it says that the planet is tohu wabohu in a state of devastation but the big clue was an anomaly in the verses if you just read it sentence by sentence before any of the work of creation that we're familiar with from Genesis, let there be light and everything else, the planet already exists. Before let there be light, before the sun, the moon, the stars, planet Earth already exists, flooded and shrouded in darkness. And that should tell any believer there's something else going on here than we thought. What I is that the planet was flooded, shrouded in darkness because of this impact and life now has to recover. And what the visitors do is exactly what we do when we go into a neighbor's country to help people recover after flooding, after earthquakes, after tsunamis, after landslides, and they rehabilitate things. So first of all, the pool of dust and ash and soot has to be cleared. The sky has to be cleared so that the sun can begin driving all the forces of life again. So they clear the sky. Now we can see the sun. We can see now we can see the stars. And now the waters have to be separated. We've got to have safe, fresh drinking water, and it's got to be separate from the seawater. This is what we do when we go into Bangladesh and places like that that suffer flooding. And the story of Genesis and the Sumerian creation story begins with the separation of fresh and salt water. Then you've got the nurturing of life in the oceans, then vegetation, then creeping things and animals, and then us, that's the sequence. And so as I gypsies, I could see they really confirmed each other that there's a rehabilitation, a reconstruction going on. And the lovely thing about that is that the very first ET contact that's described is a benign one, yes. that people yes. have arrived to help planet Earth. And that is part of the Elohim story. When people talk about the Anunnaki, it can sound freakish and horrifying and terrifying. When people think about ETs, they might immediately think Mars attack, Independence Day, invasion of the body body snatchers, and the dark side to the story of a populated universe. But we've had benign interactions too. And those memories of benign contact are all around the world in our ancient mythologies.
0: Now, Paul, then the question asks, I mean, you know, the first one was benign. You know, here there's been a catastrophe. There's a cataclysm. You know, we've got to help them, right? We've, we've got to, to nurture this planet back to life and get things going again. Um, but when we think about, about the Yahweh in the Old Testament, could that have been another ET race by then?
1: Well, uh, as I go through the Hebrew stories, the Hebrew canvas are various ET presences uh, with some kind of a stakeholding in planet Earth. And sometimes they bump up against each other and they compete with each other. So, as you go further into the stories of the, the, the Hebrew stories, you've got one Elohim here competing with this Elohim over here and sending the humans out to war against each other. There's this body called the, the Heavenly Council or the Sky Council where these entities, these Elohim and Bene Elohim, are debating as to what next, how to foment the next war. And sometimes they conflict over what the human story should be. You get to Genesis 3, there's a conflict among Elohim as to how conscious and intelligent the humans should be. You get to Genesis 3, that is. get to Genesis 6, there's a conflict over how, technolo- how much technology should uh, these humans have. The Tower of Babel, yes. Tower of Babel, that's right. Mm-hmm. So there are various presences with various agendas, they're bumping up against each other, and a lot of times we seem caught in the crossfire in some of these early stories.
0: My goodness, you know, I'm a big Star Trek fan, <laughs> and you know that prime directive, right? So certainly there's been a whole lot of breaking of the rules here, breaking the universal rules of of not interfering,
1: (laughs) for sure. Yes, there has, that's right. And I mean, even in Star Trek, that prime directive gets broken a few times, doesn't it? I mean, the United Federation of Planets is supposed to work it all out together. Then you've got naughty villains and Klingons who break the rules from time to time. I think it's very similar to what we see in the pages of our ancient texts, but also it may give some explanation as to why there's this veil of secrecy over ET contact uh, in our day? Why isn't it more open? I think it has to do with that prime directive. Mm.
0: You know, and this, this makes my, you know, I, I kind of have a crazy mind, <laughs> if you haven't already recognized. Um, but I, I think about some of the scriptures and what they actually say and, and some of the abilities you know, that a lot of the, the Bible uh, characters and people uh, had, like, like Noah. Remember when Noah was born, they were concerned that he might have been uh, a child of a watcher? Um, and we also look at, uh, at Jesus. He had these powers. Do you think they could have been, you know, could they have been um, children? you know of these watchers or or hybrids
1: well it's uh, if, if we no because the the story that emerges with the plural elohim and then reading the parallels is that we we've all got a little bit of et in us okay that uh, we we are earthlings we're human beings we have ancestry here but that uh, we have been tweaked and modified a little bit here and there genesis 3 that's really what that text is all about and there are debates among the powerful ones as to whether we should be up to this level or this level. And in fact, in the Sumerian genus Popovu, the Mesoamerican and some of the African stories, there's a very clear explanation that we were upgraded, upgraded, upgraded. And then up to here, where we were a little bit more capable than we are today, where we had abilities in precognition, remote viewing, telepathic ability um abilities in healing that flowed from that and then the um the colonizers the genetic modifiers said oh the, these guys are a bit hard to make let's die out a bit and so that's what happened we're inhibited uh, just uh, to touch on it briefly there's a fascinating um Topic of genuine scientific inquiry in our day, neuroscientists study a phenomenon called acquired Savant syndrome, okay. which is where an accident, a blow to the head, a central nervous system injury, suddenly unlocks amazing cognitive abilities. And scientists are baffled by that. How can an injury suddenly make you cleverer? I mean, you can speak a new language, play a new instrument, physics or whatever it is. What are advanced abilities doing in our brains in the off position? Uh, and science hasn't found an answer to that.
0: That that DNA that that uh, they've spoken a great deal about. They just don't know well, what it is, right?
1: They, exactly. But the mythologies have an answer. They say we all have those capacities. Uh, we we all have that potential. But the story is that we got dialed down, and a lot of the cultures that have curated these stories of ink, your methods for trying to, we upgrade us, to get us more conscious, more intelligent, more insightful once again. So that's I just that's a little side point I'm making there. But when you go back to Noah, um, it may be that Noah was so special because he was uh, human, not because he was different to human, because the great controversy in Genesis 6 was around another layer of hybridization that was happening. And for a lot of believers, that's clear that there may be ETs because this other species is mentioned that suddenly comes and hybridizes with human beings. And that's what has to be stopped. And Noah seems to be the reboot of humanity that avoids the problem of the hybridization. So it may be the other way around, in fact, that Noah was more purely human. But when we get to someone like Jesus or some of the prophets and say, how could they do that? They've got these amazing powers. It may be they are showing us what a human being is capable of with the inhibitors switched off, operating at the kind of level of consciousness and ability that is really the potential of every one of us.
0: Interesting. And, you know, looking at human history, it seems that there's definitely a parallel, you know, looking back at the Sumerian tablets and uh, creating a slave race, you know, to do their bidding. Uh, it seems that uh, we tend to do that to our, to one another on this planet. It seems to be a parallel in, in that whole mindset of, of keeping some people down, you know, so that others can flourish. You know, we look at you know how the economy operates that there there has to be some poverty in order for it to function properly it's uh it, it looks like we got that from <laughs> from, from from our uh, i guess progenitors are you know the people who yeah uh, i
1: i believe that that's what the story says the story says we were hardwired so that we could be managed and so yes i think as societies we are very susceptible of being dominated uh politically uh enslaved and then we enslave one another i mean it happened it also happens in patterns of um exploitative employment uh autocratic government Mm -hmm. and we have a way even in our families of keeping each other down you know keeping each other in our place Mm -hmm. and um This is something we need to break out of, and and my book Escaping from Eden goes into this because I believe that Jesus and the New Testament has a lot more to do with breaking us free from slave thinking than we've been allowed to recognize. And you you know, in uh, American history, there was some debate when there was the uh, horrible period of uh, enslavement of Africans in America as to whether they should be taught Christianity whether they should know what was in the bible because it was recognized by the mm-hmm. european colonizers that the bible is a revolutionary document and that people might come away from reading it thinking we should not be slaves there should not be slaves and masters <laughs> and I, I think those who thought that got that right An explosive document, and jesus is all about liberating human beings maximizing us he is not interchangeable of authority and command and it's a wonder to me that we manage to create forms of Christianity that are so hierarchical and so feudalized when that is not in the gospel at all.
0: No, it's not. Well, we know that it, it all is rooted in fear,
1: you know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. When people ask what does slave programming look like, because it sounds a bit abstract, I think the short answer is fear. If you have a fearful um being, you're being manipulated. So yeah. I think giving us courage, giving one another courage, I think that's a big part of what the gospel is really about. And I hope that when people read Escaping from Eden, that's what they come away with, a feeling of courage and excitement at exploring what our potential is as individuals and then how we can live better and more expansively as a society.
0: Well, Paul, with your extensive background as a theologian and a Bible scholar, Um, you know, a member of the clergy, do you have any suggestions for, for our viewers, for the audience on how they might embark upon a really deep exploration of the scriptures? Like what are some of the tools that they might need to help them along that? I think probably,
1: yeah, I think um, the key tool, and it's one that doesn't cost any money, is questions. To be full of questions and if your question hasn't been answered satisfactorily then don't settle keep that question pursue it so when you come to any text there are obvious questions to ask who wrote this uh, why did they write it why was this writing included in the canon and what else was going on at the time to include this and that gets you into understanding the text and then you can ask How does this text understand me? So if you go to the text with questions that may be nothing to do with the text, they're your questions. How can I live a more joyful life? How can I live a more productive life? How can I be a more loving person? If those are your questions, carry them with you wherever you go and ask it of what you read or whatever situation and ask it of your sacred texts as well. And you will find God will be speaking to you as you carry those questions with you. And if something doesn't fit, if an answer doesn't make sense, uh, if you can't get what you're reading in the text to fit with your other beliefs, then it doesn't fit. It's asking you to look again. It's showing you something new. So I think that's a really vital thing. costs no money, really treasure you. you've got any spare money to spend, and you're studying the Bible, get a second Bible with a different translation. Read them side by side, and that will give you new questions because it'll show you, oh, this is what the translators are wrestling with as they go to the Greek or they go to the Hebrew. These are the questions it's thrown up. I can see that because of the way the translations approach it differently. Then if you've got a bit more money to spend, uh, you could get an interlinear where you can see the Greek. This is, this is what I go to. I can see the Greek of the New Testament and the version of the Old Testament. You've got a word-by-word word rendering of what's happening. And again, it gives you new questions. Oh, well, what does that word really mean? Let's see how the translations approach that. And it will give you deeper insights. If you've got even more money, you can buy a lexicon and you can go and look all those words up. But whatever tools you've got, whether you've studied languages or not, whether you can afford to buy all these books or not, it always comes down to asking questions and not resting on a question that's only been half answered.
0: <laughs> well, Paul, that is excellent advice. Um, I know that uh, that the audience are thinkers, critical thinkers, and they're definitely going to take okay. you up on that. Uh, I am too. And so with our last few moments, is there anything that you want to share and definitely want to share how people can get the book Escaping Eden and uh, perhaps how they can look and see what you are doing. Cause you're doing a lot.
1: Well, uh, you can go to my website, which is paulantonywallis.com. Uh, so it's Anthony with an H and Wallace W A L L I S paulantonywallace.com And you can keep up with everything I'm doing through that. Go to Zahn's Noble Kindle, get your copy of Escaping from Eden and that will begin an exciting journey for you too. And if you want to compare notes with me, uh, you might say, this is, this is not right. I don't agree with this. Send me a message. We can have a conversation. You can reach me through my website and you can watch pieces I put up on the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube and on the Fifth Kind TV. And we're continually putting out documentary content on that. And thefifthkind.tv.com I think that's our our proper web address. You can go and find our website. But the Fifth Kind TV, Paul Wallace Channel and PaulAnthonyWallace.com. That'll tell you everything I'm up to.
0: Wonderful. Well, I know that everyone is going to head right on over. I'm definitely going to have the links in the description box so So. that uh, it'll make it easier for you to find them. But uh, I just thank everyone for joining us here. And I, and I know that this was very insightful for everyone. It certainly was for me. And I was absolutely in, in, just enlightened, yes. <laughs> but uh, so excited to have you on, Paul, finally as a guest. And I thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Tamara. I love your show. I love your podcasts. I think they're exactly what's needed in these days.
0: Thank you so much. Well, I thank everyone for joining us here on the Illuminations Media Network. And remember, free that mind, and the rest will definitely follow. Until next time, thank you.